evidence and answers. Skeptics often argue that if God exists, why doesn't he make the evidence so obvious? No one could deny his existence. Why doesn't he put a glowing cross in the sky or strike down the wicked with a bolt of lightning? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an international teacher, speaker, and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Pat will share a message entitled, Why Isn't the Evidence Clearer? And we will hear several answers to this formidable challenge for the skeptic's question. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the challenges of today. Well, skeptics often argue, if God exists, why doesn't he make the evidence so obvious no one could deny his existence? For example, I have had skeptics tell me, why doesn't he put a glowing cross in the sky or strike people down who deny his existence or speak against them with a bolt of lightning? Here are some ways to address this challenge. The first is that one must have a reasonable standard. We cannot set up an impossible standard that can never be realistically reached. We do not make decisions in life based on 100% certainty with absolutely no doubt or questions whatsoever. Instead, we make reasonable decisions based on the evidence at hand. In other words, we all make decisions every day on reasonable evidence not absolute certainty. One can never be 100% certain without a doubt of anything in any decision one makes. One makes decisions on reasonableness of the evidence. If we needed 100% certainty with no doubt whatsoever, then really we couldn't function in life. For example, I mean, can you be 100% certain the label on the can of corn you're buying at the supermarket is correct without any shadow of a doubt whatsoever? No, that means you don't buy any canned goods. Well, of course you do. You're reasonably certain. Can anyone be 100% certain the food they eat at a restaurant is completely free of any hazardous bacteria? Well, no. If you had to be 100% sure without any doubt whatsoever, then you couldn't go out and eat anywhere. We're reasonably sure that the restaurant we're at, the food that they present is nutritious and safe. Can anyone be 100% certain all the drivers on the road today that will pass by will obey all the road signs and drive safely? No, you can't be 100% certain without a doubt about that. Therefore, you never take your car for a drive. You see, you can't set up such an impossible standard that no one can meet. And every day in life, we don't base our decisions on 100% certainty without a doubt. We base it on the reasonableness of the evidence and we make a reasonable decision. We're reasonably sure, but not never, rarely are we ever 100% certain without any questions whatsoever. So when we make decisions, we don't set up such a high standard that no one can meet. We must ask, what is the best explanation for the evidence that we do have at hand? In other words, when we look at the evidence around us, for example, what best explains the origin of the universe? What best explains the apparent design we have in the created order around us? What best explains that universal moral law which all 
cultures abide by. You look at the evidence that is there. You know, what does the archaeology say about the Bible? What about the manuscript evidence? Is there enough evidence there that tells us the Bible is an accurate historical work? You cannot dismiss the evidence because it does not meet up to your subjective standard. You see, you have to deal with the evidence that is there and make the most reasonable decision based on the evidence that you have. For example, a police detective cannot dismiss the evidence at a crime scene because he does not have the evidence he wants or that there's not enough evidence at hand to identify the thief. The officer must work with the evidence he has and come to the most reasonable conclusion. So when an investigator comes to a crime scene, he doesn't say, well, there's no videotape that shows the face of the perpetrator. So we don't know what really happened. Therefore, I'm not going to make a decision. I'm just walking away. No, he doesn't. He looks at the evidence that is there, takes fingerprints, looks at whatever evidence he can find to put together a reasonable case, talks to eyewitnesses, okay? and then he comes to a reasonable conclusion. In the arena of archaeology, we rarely have a fully intact city standing as it did centuries ago. Rarely do we find full manuscripts of entire books with notes and complete records. When we do not have those things, we do not say, well, since there's not enough evidence that meets my desired standard, I'll not do any more research, nor will I make any conclusions about the ruins I have before me. No, a good archaeologist, if he's worth anything, is going to go there and look at the evidence that he has and come to the most reasonable conclusion. So the evidence must be clear enough to select Christianity as the most reasonable choice over the alternatives. And I believe that there are compelling reasons and evidence that one should believe in Christ. So the first point is that we don't set an impossible standard of absolute certainty and then ask the Christian to meet that standard. Second, God seeks a love relationship with us. So he will not stalk us, but preserves our free will. Let me explain what I mean. Free will is our ability to make decisions without external coercion. Now, in order for us to love God, there must be the ability to exercise free will. Love must be freely chosen. That relationship must be freely chosen to be entered in, into by both parties. If God made his presence totally undeniable, he would be taking away our ability to seek and to love him. Instead of coercion, he gives us the freedom to reject or pursue him. He presents enough light, enough evidence for those who want to see and enough dimness for those who want to reject that light. God gives enough evidence, and those who are honestly seeking the truth will respond and seek Him. Those who seek the truth will be given more evidence. Those who reject the evidence at hand, God will not stalk them to believe. For example, if I'm interested in a girl, I give her enough evidence that I am interested. Hey, for example, I may post a friend request on her Facebook page or send her a email or try to converse with her when I see her at work or at school or wherever, you know, we run into each other. Now, if she rejects my offers, I may try again. And eventually, if she rejects it enough time, I'll eventually walk away. However, let's take this scenario. Suppose 
After several rejections, I continue to pursue and pursue even harder. I give her more gifts. I buy her more flowers, more presents, more boxes of chocolates. I come around relentlessly, hounding her in the library, at the coffee break, following her home constantly, you know, singing outside her window at night. I call more often. Instead of feeling more loved, she's going to feel more harassed, not loved. And we don't call that a romance. We call that stalking, right? And, and if I were to do that to someone, I'd probably, you know, end up behind bars. Well, God is not going to stalk someone to get them to believe. He doesn't stalk us to coerce us and force us to love him. Love is not forced. In a relationship, God gives us enough evidence, and those who want to know more will receive more, and he invites us to pursue him and find him. And he promises in the Bible, if we seek him with all our heart, we're going to find him. Hey, but those who reject the evidence that is there, he's not going to stalk you until you believe in him. So God is not a cosmic stalker. So God wants us to enter freely into a love relationship with him. That's why he seems to restrain himself. Third, God restrains himself to show us something about our inner character, to reveal the true nature of all men and women. God is not so obvious in revealing himself. He is restraining himself to show us something about our inner character. For example, you know, there's the old sheriff in the tavern principle. Now, people tend to behave in the tavern when they think they're being watched by an authority. But if a sheriff wants to find out who the troublemakers in the tavern really are and to expose them, he's either got to come in undercover or hide or appear as an undercover, maybe a wimpy kind of guy. Otherwise, the bad guys will behave in the presence of an authority. Now, mothers know this principle well. Johnny treats his younger siblings very nicely when mom is around. But as soon as she leaves, it's often a different story. If God is going to judge mankind on the evil we commit, his case is greatly strengthened if he allows men and women to carry out their deeds and to publicly display their acts. If God struck people down every time they disobeyed him, people would obey him out of fear not out of love. That kind of obedience is forced against one's will, and no one would want to be in that kind of relationship. So just as the sheriff allows a fight to break out in a tavern so he can have the best evidence against the troublemakers, God often allows men and women to go forth in their acts of evil so that God can rightly and justly judge us upon the things that we have done. Ecclesiastes 8.11 states, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So sometimes God holds back to reveal the true heart of man. A man thinking God is not present or weak, commit the acts that is really in their heart. Fourth, some who truly do not want to believe will never have enough evidence to satisfy them. You know, God has given sufficient evidence that he exists. We have sufficient evidence that the Bible is a historically reliable document, that Christ was a historical person who lived a miraculous, sinless life, died and rose again. Now, wicked men distort the truth that is already presented to them. 
Men and women who do not want to acknowledge God will find a way to distort the evidence. And given that this is man's basic tendency, how clear does the evidence need to be before everyone in the world will be convinced and not explain it away? For example, in the Bible, we've, we've got numerous evidences. During the Exodus, when God performed tremendous miracles on a regular basis, still many in Israel did not believe. Jesus did many miracles in his brief three-year ministry there in Israel, yet many, many did not believe. We see that principle displayed in Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. As the rich man is being tormented in hell, he begs that Father Abraham send Lazarus back from the dead because he believes that if someone goes back from the dead, his five brothers will receive the message and believe. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. So for some people bent on not believing, no matter what evidence you present to them, they will not believe. You know, there's the familiar story of the man who believed that he was dead. And he went to the doctor and he said, doctor, I'm dead. I'm not alive. And the doctor tried to convince him the man is alive. He's got a heartbeat. He's communicating. And the man said, no, doctor, I am dead. I am dead. And the doctor kept saying, well, how can you walk? How can you talk to me? I'm alive. And he kept saying, doctor, I am dead. I'm telling you, I am dead. He was dead set on believing he was dead. And finally, the doctor said, all right, do dead men bleed? And the man said, no, dead men do not bleed. And so the doctor pricked his finger right there and he started bleeding. And the patient looked at the doctor and said, wow. I didn't know that. Dead men do bleed. <laughs> you see, that man was dead set on believing he was dead. And no matter what evidence you gave him, he was not going to be convinced otherwise. And that's how it is with skeptics who are dead set on not believing. They're going to find any excuse or any way to distort the evidence to justify their unbelief. So for some, there will never be enough evidence. And when you meet those kinds of people, you're going to have to practice that principle Jesus taught us to not cast your pearls before swine. Probably the energy and time you're devoting to share with that person is probably not worth all that great time and effort. Eventually, you're going to have to just move on to someone else that's more open and going to be fair with the evidence that's presented with them. Fifth, God restrains himself that his grace and justice may be fulfilled. God gives the level of evidence he does for two reasons, grace and accountability. Let me explain. You know, grace, God will see those who desire to know truth will get a sufficient level of evidence. Some people get sufficient evidence and believe, while some get more evidence and still do not believe. And then it also holds us accountable. God states that he has given mankind enough evidence so as Romans 1 says, all men are without excuse for what may be known about God. He has made clear to them from the things that he has made so that all men are without excuse. Yet mankind willfully rejects the evidence that they already are given. So God is not obligated 
to give more. God does not give overwhelming evidence, but sufficient evidence that every person is responsible to respond to it. And in life, we don't base decisions on overwhelming evidence all the time but on sufficient evidence. People are convicted in court based on sufficient evidence. We make major decisions in corporations and in companies based on sufficient evidence. In fact, we even go to war based on sufficient evidence. We see this principle displayed in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 39. You know, in this chapter, Jesus had been doing many miracles doing his ministry. And here in Matthew chapter 12, the religious leaders come to him and say, we want to see a sign from you. Now, prior to that request from Matthew chapter 7 through 11, Jesus had performed many miracles already. And so they were not making an honest request to Jesus. And Jesus understood that. So his response was, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And some people, like the Pharisees, demand that God perform a miracle impressive enough that will force them to believe. And God is not obligated to cater to the egos of those who will reject any evidence they have in order to remain in their lifestyle. To demand God perform to meet our standards is expressing sovereignty over God. That's the opposite of repentance and turning from sin and humbling ourselves before the Lord. Finally, when engaging a skeptic, ask them what is their standard upon which they make their decisions. The same standard they set for the Christian then should be used to prove their position. Often they set high standards for everyone else, but the evidence that upholds their own position does not meet the standards they set for everyone else. Now, for example, in talking with a skeptic, he opened by saying there's no proof that Christianity is true. I then presented him with evidence for the existence of God, which surprised him. He, he hadn't heard those before. And he acknowledged that I had presented reasonable case, but he was not convinced. Then I presented evidence for the resurrection, and he tried to dismiss the evidences as simply circumstantial. Then I turned around and asked him, what are his standards of credible evidence that would convince him that Christianity is true? At this, he paused for a while, and then he stated the evidence needs to be undeniable. That could leave no doubt in anyone's mind that Christianity is true. I then said, let's apply that same standard to your atheism. Provide me positive evidence that God does not exist, that atheism is true. And the evidence needs to be so undeniable, it would leave no doubt in anyone's mind that God does not exist and that atheism is true. Well, he found himself caught in a dilemma. I mean, he realized that he set the standard so high on everyone else, yet when it was applied to him, he couldn't meet his own standard. Finally, what about the atheist who says, well, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence? Well, that's what we have when it comes to our faith in Christ. We have extraordinary evidence. There are thousands of manuscripts confirming the accurate transmission of the Old and New Testament. Literally, 
we have tens of thousands. No other ancient document has such manuscript historical attestation as the Bible. Thousands, literally tens of thousands of archaeological discoveries confirm people, places, and events mentioned in the Bible. There's no book like it with so much historical confirmation. Now, let's apply the same standard to the atheists. What about the atheists? Extraordinary claims. Do they have extraordinary evidence for their extraordinary claims? For example, how did we get life from non-life? I mean, that has never been explained. Talk to the scientists who are out there. That has not been explained, but you're not going to find one atheist who doesn't believe life came from non-life. And that's an extraordinary claim. How non-living matter somehow uh, through natural causes, we got RNA, which developed into complex structures of DNA. Uh, no scientist has been able to explain how we got life from non-life, how non-living material through natural causes, these amino acids came together to create protein structures. And these protein structures came together to produce hugely complex RNA combinations and huge then you know hugely complex DNA DNA that would form living organisms no one has ever shown that yet there's not one atheist who doesn't believe life came from non-life the universe exploding into existence from nothing the big bang Whatever begins to exist must have a cause, and the atheists have not come up with a reasonable cause for the beginning of the universe. Those are two extraordinary claims, and we should have extraordinary evidence for them. Yet, that's something they do not have. Historical events, you know, I'm a historian. My graduate degrees are in apologetics, theology, and, and archaeology, and Historical events such as Alexander the Great's life or the life of Julius Caesar, much of that is based on significantly less evidence than we have for the miraculous life of Jesus Christ. I mean, significantly less. Even the writings on their biographies, there are just partial fragments and there's a dozen or less that we are working from. Yet there's no skeptic or atheist that would doubt the historical accomplishments and existence of Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. But their life history is based on much, much significantly less evidence there. So when the skeptic says extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, We've got some very extraordinary evidence when it comes to our faith in Christ. But when it comes to much of uh, the extraordinary claims of the atheists and other historical figures, the extraordinary evidence is not there. So when engaging skeptics who ask, why isn't the evidence more obvious? Well, I hope the reasons and arguments I gave you today help you answer their objections and engage in a meaningful dialogue that plants seeds in their minds, that as these seeds are watered in the future by others, their hearts will soften to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ as they see Christianity is the most reasonable position and worldview out there. Well, thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers, where we answer the challenges against faith in Christ and where we equip you 
to be an effective ambassador for Christ. Thank you for joining us here at Evidence and Answers, and I hope you check out our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Tremendous resources, articles, archive of our radio shows are there free for you to listen. And I hope you can come and join us at our conferences. We have a youth apologetics conference and an adults conference every year here in Hawaii. And we do some when we have the opportunity in places around the United States and around the world. So I hope to meet you at one of our youth or adult apologetic conferences. God bless you as you proclaim the gospel and defend our faith in Christ. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed the show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your friends. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Yeah,